Okay, so today we're going to begin the next chapter, uh, Lesson 5 on Salvation. So I'd like to open with a question, and I'd like to start with Brother Bob, and then whoever else would like to add something, please feel free to do so. What is salvation? What is salvation? Brother Bob, please. Being saved from the wrath of God. Absolutely. Anybody else? Brother Lewis. Okay. Anybody else like to add to that definition? Amen. Amen. It's all those things and a whole lot more. But what we'd like to do is we'd like to focus on salvation because the next couple of weeks, that's going to be the topic that we're going to be dealing with. Of course, I won't be the one presenting every week, uh, but nonetheless, we'll begin today. So we have an understanding of what salvation is. It's something that God is doing for us, those whom he loved, the elect, those before time. He had already selected that we're going to be part of the family of God. And what we'd like to look at, just briefly, are three other competing theologies that we deal with on a regular basis. One is Arminianism. One is Romanism, and one is Universalism. And so we'd like just briefly to look at each one of them and why um, they are dissenting theologies, really. They compete with with, uh, soteriology, salvation, as we know it from a Reformed perspective, a biblical perspective. So, first of all, Armenianism. Armenianism, in a nutshell, is... Man has a part to play in his or her salvation. So my first question is, is that accurate based on the scriptures, based what, as we know it, does man have anything or woman have anything to do with plan of salvation? And if so, from your perspective, what is it? Brother Bob. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. So let me ask you this question to the group, because it's Bob mentioned fairness, God being fair. In the context of God being fair, let's explore fairness. What is really fair when it comes to God and humanity? What is really fair? What is really fair? Amen. And so why do we all deserve to go to hell? Why do we all deserve to go to hell? We've broke God's law. All sin and comes fall short of the glory of God. And when did that happen? At the fall with Adam and Eve. And how long is that curse uh, placed on humanity? And at what time is it actually lifted? And how was it lifted? So how long is the curse? That's the first question. Until when? Until Christ returns. How is that curse lifted from some and not from others? Absolutely. Absolutely. So those are important things. Those are important things. So we are all fallen. We are all broken. We all have disobeyed God. We are all living in the state of sin at some point when we came into this earth. And it is the grace of God extended to us through the person of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work that saves us. So as far as redemptive work goes, what actually is it? that cleanses us from our sins and saves us from eternal punishment. What is the power that actually saves us? Okay, Christ, amen. 
So when somebody prays a sinner's prayer, does that save them? No. When somebody walks an aisle, does that save them? No. But it's faith that saves them, right? Faith in Jesus Christ. But faith in Jesus Christ, we, a couple weeks back we heard, if Jesus, did Jesus have to die for men and women to be saved from their sins? Did he have to die? Couldn't he have just had like his finger plucked and you know, a drop of his blood would have been sufficient for all humanity? Did he have to die? And so the answer is yes. Why did he have to die? Morning, Dayra, my brother. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to spill his blood? Amen. So from the beginning, before there was time, because time is a concept we live within. God always has been. He's eternal. Jesus and the Holy Spirit. When they were meeting and discussing this plan that we live within of God's, from that beginning, it was already decided that Jesus was going to give his life for humanity, for his elect. So when we look at Arminianism, we understand just as much is that really what it is is Jesus plus something. It's Jesus plus something. And when it's Jesus plus something, it diminishes the power of Jesus Christ. It diminishes the sovereignty of God the Father. And that's the problem with Arminianism. Now, we have friends, neighbors, and perhaps family members, and we ourselves, at some point, I know I did, like Brother Bob and probably a lot of you here, believed in Arminianism, that I had something to do, that I could live life and I could live it on my terms. And when I got to just a couple of hours before I was going to, be, to meet Jesus, that I could accept him as my Lord and Savior. Now what a lie and a heap of trash that is, right, in terms of theology. Right. Absolutely. Man's logic. Yes, my brother. So let's look at the two on the thieves on the cross as it re- relates to Arminianism. You have one thief that comes with a repentant heart, right? You have another thief who is arrogant about, about who Christ is and about who he is. I guess the second thief is really the captain of his ship, right? He's the one, like many of us at some point in time, said, I will live life on my terms. I am the captain of my ship. I re- I'm not accountable to anybody. Nobody has power over me. I will do as I please, good, bad, or indifferent. That's the other thief. So when you look at the thief on the cross, the one that Jesus turned to and said, today you'll be with me in paradise, what was that thief's mindset? Where was he in terms of the truth? How did, what was he actually communicating when he said, Lord, remember me when you go to your place, till you go to your home in heaven, till you go to your kingdom. Yes, Lewis. So let, that is absolutely accurate, biblically accurate. Go ahead, Bob. <laughs> Amen. Amen. The power of God in Christ Jesus, right? The guy in the middle. The guy in the middle. 
didn't even know him as Savior and Lord at this point in time, but he knew the truth. And the truth penetrated to his heart in that hour that he could be saved. So as we look at the other guy on the other side, the other thief, what do we know about him? We know that he is in total control of his life. And you know, all the way up until the point that he died, because Jesus was going to die regardless, but he gave up his own life, and it was for us, the elect. So both of those die after Jesus died, both of them, right? So he still had time, but he was busy navigating his own life on his own terms, resisting God, and like many other unbelievers, thinking that he had total control, and at any given point in time, even as he goes into eternity, he will dictate to God what his life ought to be and that he should have access to paradise. Now, these are all important, what we're talking about. And so, you know, you see the foolishness. The fool, the fool says there is no God. And I could only think that that guy at that point in time is believing that there is no God, that Jesus is not God. Jesus is not Christ. So, on the other thief, the one that is going into paradise, where did he get the truth? Because, you know, the Bible says in Romans 10 is that the word is an important part of somebody coming to salvation because it is the word of God that actually transforms, convicts people of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, right? So where did that word come from? Because Jesus didn't give him the gospel message on the cross, but it came from somewhere. And I think both of them had access to the word of God during their lifetime in Jerusalem because Jesus and his redemptive work was mightily in place in permeating the society as we knew it. And so my question to you is, where did the thief who ends up going to heaven get the word from? Where did it come from? Anybody? God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to do is, that's right, I'm tying it to that you have to hear the word. The word has to be heard. True? That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what Lewis is saying. And the point is, what we're trying to say is that the power of the Word of God is immense, and it's important. So we as Reformed individuals, we ask sometimes the question of, how, why is evangelism important? It's important because people need to hear the Word of God. That's why it's important. It is through the Word of God that people can come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and repent of their sins. It's that they can actually know who Christ is. And so... This thief that ends up in eternity with Christ heard the message somewhere during his lifetime. And God was at work because he responded at the point before he passed on. Yes. Amen. Amen. Just a minute. Just a minute. Yes, my sister. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. He even communicated that. We deserve death but not this man. Yes, my brother. Well, the grace of God is extended to them. So, but we're not going to get into that because that'll take a whole nother, another class. That's a deep thing. So what we'd like to look at now is Romanism because we've heard 
a lot of that going on here. So what's the difference between Romanism and Arminianism? Arminianism says, and they're closely related, Arminianism says, I have some control in my own salvation. Romanism says, Jesus plus something. Here we go again. So it's Jesus plus the sacraments, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus, Jesus plus whatever else. Romanism teaches that because there are requirements within Romanism that if you're going to be a good Roman Catholic, there are certain things that are expected of us. And I come from that, so I know what it's about. And, uh, of course, I'm not a theologian in terms of Catholic theology, but I know enough. And so Romanism is a close cousin to Arminianism, but it's tied to sacraments. It's tied to certain rules that are stipulated by the church, the Catholic church, in terms of what is required for somebody to be in good steed, I guess, if you will, before God and be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so that's Romanism. The last one I want to talk about and I want to focus on is universalism. Now, universalism says that everybody, Christ died for everybody, and everybody will eventually make their way to heaven. So is that what Scripture teaches? Dayron. Does Scripture teach universalism? No. no. What does Scripture teach, Dayron? Amen. Amen. To eternity future, correct? Yes, exactly. So, we'll go on. Does anybody want to add anything about universalism? Because we want to move from that point forward now. So you have Arminianism, Romanism, and Universalism. They are both contrary to the Word of God. They are all three unbiblical as far as we as Reformed are concerned and as we understand the, what the Bible has to say about salvation based on the Scriptures. One thing I'd say about Universalism is it's developed because there are terms used within the Bible that make it appear as though we're talking in general terms of everybody. And that is not the case because we have to take it within the context of the Scripture. And so I just encourage you to know the Word of God, to read the Word of God, to pray over the Word of God, to meditate on the Word of God, and to share the Word of God with one another and have those types of discussions in your home, at church, wherever that might be. So the memory verse for today is Roman is Ephesians 2, 8, and 2, 8 through 10. For by the grace, for by grace... You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the first question we have well, a statement is, is that God has, according to the lesson, that God has decreed or ordained a plan of salvation that he has revealed to us in the Bible. In the lesson, we will learn how he saves those who believe. So how was God's redeeming work applied to man? How was God's redeeming work applied to man? Anybody? Okay. What the Word of God says is Romans 8, 28 through 30, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for, the, for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he did predestine, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So how do we know if someone is a Christian? Well, before we go there, let's talk about the plan of salvation out of Romans 8. Verse 29 says, Whom he foreknew, he also predestinated. What does that mean? In biblical terms, what does foreknowing mean? Anybody? Foreknowing. Knowing before it existed. Because there is, there is a thought out there, and it permeates our society that says, well, because God knows what's going to happen, God foreknew. But that is not the biblical definition. That is man's definition of limiting God and the sovereignty of God, trying to box the sovereignty of God into what we can understand. What Brother Bob was saying is that from eternity past, God foreknew. And as we continue on in verse 29, this you'll find in your lesson, he also predestinated. What does it mean to be predestinated? Anybody predestinated? Lewis. Preselected. That's exactly it. And why is being predestinated an important part of our salvation? What does it do for us to know that God foreknew and predestined us to salvation in Jesus Christ? Anybody? Assurance. Assurance. Our assurance in our salvation and what Christ has done. Now in verse 30 it says, He whom he predestined, he also called. And what does it mean to be called of God? What does it mean to be called of God? Does it mean, like, I call out to one of you and say, Hey, it's time for dinner. You know, that kind of calling out. Does it mean just calling out what of our, you know, our children? And said, hey, son, hey, daughter. No, it doesn't mean that. It's not that kind of calling. It's not the kind of calling where you hear with your ear and you respond. This, what's that, Brother Bob? It's a drawing of the heart. So it's God at work in the lives of the elect, drawing them to Jesus Christ through the heart. When you look at the thief on the cross, that's exactly what happened. He was drawn to Jesus. He was drawn in the Spirit to believe all the things he had heard, and for whatever reason, he just disregarded it. But there came a point in time where the power of God at work in his life, this call, he could not resist any longer. He could not, he could not resist any longer. And what do we call that in Reformed theology, we call that irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is that we can go through life and then there comes a point in time where you can no longer resist it. You have to. Pardon me? An offer too good to refuse. Exactly. Absolutely, he did. Amen. Well, that would be true. That would be true of all of us. Well, you know, the Bible says that none seek after God. There's no, not one, right? And when you think about the beginning of humanity from Adam forward, even of the best of us, it's said that none of us seek after God. 
And the best of us is no better than the worst of us. But it is the call of God on our lives that the Holy Spirit draws us unto the Savior. And it's irresistible. And so the point in Romans here is he predestined, he also called. He also called. Because if you're predestined, but you're not called, then you have to ask yourself, what do I have? Because it's unfinished work. So you have to be called. And that calling takes place in the heart. Some people might say, well, you know, God spoke to me, this or that. But this kind of calling goes deep within. And so it's not something we hear within words. Because each of us here that, has, that believes and has trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord has experienced that calling. You couldn't get away from it. Now time has perhaps gone by and maybe there's been some backsliding in our lives. I know I have. And the Lord brings me back. But that same calling brings me back. I hear his voice. I hear, I feel his drawing of me unto himself. And this is the call of God. You feel it in ministry too. You experience it. Now sometimes we confuse it. Because we have ambition and we have good, you know, a good heart. We want to do something for God. So we, we all of a sudden rush in real quick because we think, oh, I want to do this or, oh, I want to do that. And then what happens is, is that we become disappointed. But when God calls us, yes, we can be stressed. Yes, we can feel overworked. But yet this calling affirms within us that we're at the right place doing the right thing at the right time for him. And so what ends up happening is, is that our life needs some arrangement. And as we allow the Holy Spirit, he helps us to arrange so that we can align ourselves with the calling that Christ has placed on our life. So there is the calling for salvation, and there is a calling to ministry. And so there are different types of callings, but they're all predicated first and foremost in this call to salvation. And in each instance, it is something God does. It is not something that comes from us. It is something he does. We do nothing for God. Our best works are his filthy rags. We do nothing for him. So let's continue. It says in verse 30, whom he justified, he also glorified. What a wonderful statement. We are justified in Jesus Christ. It is in his blood that we are cleansed from our sins and we are made perfect before the Father. But yet here we are in this life, called to a life of holiness and purity, because we're still in this flesh and we're still battling. And so as we battle, as we go through life, we experience the power of God through the grace of God being bestowed upon us in our lives as we submit to him to be able to grow in holiness and in likeness of Jesus Christ. We think about the missionaries, right? And so as we think about the missionaries and all they're suffering and going through, we, under, we, we ask sometimes the question, how is it that they can endure such difficult life, life situations? You know, the loss of family members, being separated from their families, sickness, disease, poverty, loss of homes, loss of, of just about everything in life, with the exception of perhaps their own life at that point in time and their salvation, of course. But how is it that they are able to survive and continue to pursue and do what God has called them to do, even in their suffering? It is that they understand the grace of God is at work in them. They've submitted themselves to the grace of God, 
And they understand that Jesus has justified them. And so that he will glorify them. And so what does it mean to be glorified? What does it mean to be glorified in biblical terms? Anybody? When it takes place, what, is that, what, does, what does that look like, being glorified? We're not glorified yet, but we will be. To be made like Christ. Is that not our desire? I mean, every day we wake up, and perhaps through the day, we're in check by the Holy Spirit, and we ask the Lord for forgiveness, but what we, what we are, our real desire is we want to look like Jesus. I was thinking about this very thing, which I know all of you do the same thing, I'm sure, is I don't look enough like Christ, and so my, my plea is, Lord, help me to look more like you, because when I leave this world... That's what I want them to remember. Remember what it was said of the uh, apostles? They, the uh, Pharisees said, well, they knew that they had been with Jesus. How did they know that they had been with Jesus? Because they were reflecting Christ in their day-to-day experience in society and the people they were interacting with. So those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. So let us continue. Let us continue. And he says, so the question is next, is how do we know if someone is a Christian? Now, that's a very difficult topic, right? That's a difficult thing to assess because we don't want to be in judgment of other people because who are we to judge? But yet the Apostle Paul says, I judge all things, but yet I myself am not judged because we have the Holy Spirit living within us and he judges us. He convicts us. And so... But yet we're still called to, to be, I guess, um, analyzers, identifiers of fruit in one another's lives, right? As a form of accountability and also as, as being able to um, test the spirits, because John talks about testing the spirits. Don't believe every spirit. I think it's John. He said, but test the spirits. So let us look at a few scripture verses in John 15, 2. John says, every, says of Jesus, Jesus says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth, that it may bring forth more fruit. In John fifteen six, Jesus says, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So there's a couple things I want to look at here in those two verses. In, chapter, in verse 2 it says, Every branch in me. So it's important because there is this association with Christ. There is a claim here is that they are a follower, but does that necessarily mean they are a believer? Because if we look at the life of Judas, Judas was a follower, but Judas was not a believer. Judas, you could say, was one of these individuals that did not bear fruit. And it says here is that he's taken away. And as we go on a little further, it says he's severed. And it says that they are gathered together and they are burned by men. They are, they are burned in another verse here that we're going to look at. So we understand is that there are some who are not believers, but who are among believers who are not bearing fruit. And these individuals are the individuals that's being, that are being referenced here. And they can be there for the length of a ministry, it can be there all of their lives, and yet be a part of everything that's going on, but yet not be a part of Jesus Christ. And he says, every branch in me that beareth not fruit is taken away. 
So we ask the question, well, when are they taken away? We don't know when they're, it's not up to us, but they're taken away. And so one of the things we know is they're taken away by their own lusts and their own desires, right? Because they're the captain of their own ship. And regardless of what this place is. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians uh, 5.2. That's the fruit, because that's the foundation of everything that's going to come in terms of works is going to come from that fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, because if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, if the Holy Spirit's not living in us, then what is the motivation for good works? What's the motivation for good works if the Spirit isn't in us? Being seen by others. Exactly. Trying to garner God's approval. Trying to garner the approval of men and women about I am a good person and I care about others. And therefore I am, I am again, I am um, accepted before God and entitled to things that God has made available to you as Christians. And so that is the danger of it when we're operating in self and not by the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.2. So as we continue on, what we see that the scripture says, it says that every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth. Now, all of us here have gone through purging. If we are in Jesus Christ, we have been purged and we will continue to be pruned and we will continue to be and experience difficulties in life because we're being transformed and we're being refined and we're being made into the likeness of Jesus. And I recall the scripture, scripture says, I think it's in Hebrews where it says is that um, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now that's, that in and of itself is something we could spend an entire day taking apart. But the point is, is that Jesus said, is those who love me, obey me. And our goal is always to please the Lord Jesus. And we know that in pleasing him, we are obeying him. And what are we obeying? We're obeying the scriptures. We're applying or allowing the Holy Spirit to apply to our lives the holy scriptures that will lift up Christ so he can draw all men and women unto himself. Anybody have any thoughts about that? Anybody have any thoughts about that? About purging, about pruning. Anybody want to say anything about that? It's a form of growth. Amen. Amen. So when you're pruned, do you enjoy being pruned? No. No. And uh, do you resist being pruned sometimes? Yes. Yes. And is every difficult thing that happened in our life for our good? Yes. Amen. Uh, all these difficult things happen are good because Romans 8.28 says that. It says, and now we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose, it says? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We're all being conformed. Because we've been transformed. The moment we came to Jesus, we were transformed. The old man has gone away, right? We still struggle with the old man, but we are new in Christ Jesus. We are a new creature, the Bible says, and so that's when the transformation took place. Now we're being conformed. We're being conformed through the scriptures, through the difficulties of life. 
So, yes, we do struggle over it. Yes, it is difficult from time to time. But what, it's, what, is its, what is its goal? Its goal is that we might look like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many sons. And those whom he did predestine, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Romans 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So there's three things that we might, first of all, prove, right? We might prove what is good. What do we know about the goodness of God? What, is it that, what good is it that we're to prove? This is by knowing Scripture, because our minds are being transformed. And so one of the things is that we might prove what is good. What is the good that the Bible is talking about here? Anybody? They run. The question is, based on the scripture, it says is that we might be conformed to this world, Romans 12, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which is through scripture, that we might prove what is, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Yep. Yes. Right. That is good. That is good. Amen. So... The point is, is that God's word is good, God's will is good, but we have to know what God's word has to say about God's will. And because we don't understand the word of God, because we don't spend the amount of time in the word of God, that impacts our ability to be able to determine what is God's perfect and good will for us to glorify Christ and benefit us and those around us as we go through everyday life. And so we have to stay in scriptures. Yes, my sister. It is. That's true. She had mentioned that the will of God is that we should be sanctified, that we should live holy and, and, and honorable lives before God. So as we continue on with Scripture, what we see here in John chapter 13, verse 35, he says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you love one another. This is, what we're talking about again is how do we know if someone is a Christian? So let's, let's review a little bit. First of all, we know is that we're in Christ. That's John 15, 2. John 15, 6 says, If a man abide not in me, is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Romans 12, 2 says, Is that to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which means that we are in the Word of God. So a Christian is in the Word of God. A Christian is actually staying close to Christ. A Christian is desiring the things of God to be manifested in and through our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and by our involvement in the Christian disciplines. Amen. 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 So, on that, what is this love that Jesus wants us to love with? What, how did Jesus love us? Which is an excellent point. How did Jesus love us? How did he demonstrate that love? Amen. He gave everything for the elect. That's what he did. Yes, my sister. For his enemies. Yes. Not just fun. That's right. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Yes. Yes, Dayron, my brother. Amen. 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 
That is true. That is profound. That is really true, isn't it? Is that if we hold the gospel to ourselves, we are not really loving other people. Because we're saying, what? What are we saying when we do that about people? Saying we don't care. You say that to our family members, right? I mean, I have family members that continue to reject the gospel. And, you know, I get to a point where it's like, I don't even want to talk to them about it anymore because I know what I'm going to get. And it's like, I'd rather have peace in the house. But in the meantime, you know, you go to sleep or you're on a walk or you're thinking about your family and you're saying, they're still not saved. And if they died today, they're going to be apart from Christ. You know, and they're going to be suffering. Yes. Right. And if right. it is. Peace, the peace of Christ dwells richly in our hearts. Amen. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Amen. So what we're talking about here is that persecution for our faith, sharing the gospel, is something that we, we may and definitely at some point will encounter. And that some of us are in a workplace where we're being faithful in the sharing of our belief by the way we live our lives. And that in and of itself is testimony that brings about the attention of the world and they want to diminish and, 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 and persecute us. And, of course, Jesus said that, that we would be persecuted. So this is a good thing. But we don't do it so that we can be persecuted. We do it because it is a part of who we are as believers because we love Jesus so much and we love people so much that we want people to know what we know about Jesus Christ, which is he is the redemption of my life and has transformed me and can do the same for you. And so, yes, praise God for your sufferings, for our sufferings, and that he is um, uh, honors you with being able to suffer on his name. And we pray for your strength. We pray for the grace to be evident in your lives so you can respond correctly and appropriately with those who persecute you. But that's part of what we were talking about earlier, about when Judas was a part of the Twelve. Judas was a part of the Twelve. He followed Jesus, but he was that branch that was cast out, as we see in Scripture. And so as we continue on, and we're talking about John 13, uh, 35, he says, By this all men shall know that you are my disciples, because you have loved one for another. And as our brother Troy stated, is that Jesus... Um, always ups the ante, so to speak. He always goes to the next level and he says, love them the way I have loved you. And so how is it that God loves you? How is it that God loves us? Jesus was talking about himself, who is God, and he said to his apostles, love them as I've loved you. So at some point, you know, you have to analyze, look at it, meditate on it, and find out what exactly does that mean. It means that God gave his all, his our brother in Dayron said is that the perfect act of love of God is that he gave us Jesus Christ and gave us the word of God. So we have, a, we have the written word of God that can lead us to a place of accepting the call of God on our lives, which is that redemptive work that he brings about in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse John, in John 14, 22, he says, he, hath, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. This is what Brother Bob was talking about, is that the love of God within us compels us to look within ourselves 
and see where is it that we actually align with our faith. Are we living in our faith, the faith that God has given us in Christ, or are we living outside of that faith, claiming we have faith? So in John 14, he says that you keep those commands. And we saw in Romans 12 is that we need to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which again has to do with understanding the message that God has given us through the word of God so that we are equipped to be able to live the lives he calls us to live. And so we're going to close. Uh, We didn't get through everything, but that's quite all right. We're going to close with the memory verse that we were talking about. And uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So it is the grace of God through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. Not everybody receives this gift, but we have received this gift. Not of works, Arminianism, Romanism, even Universalism. There has to do with works. It has to do with works. But not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We don't come to Christ Jesus by good works. It is because we are in Christ that these good works want to flow out through us into society and into our families, for which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And just as a caveat on James fourteen seventeen, it says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and do it not, it is a sin. So if God has preordained, he has beforehand prepared the good works we should walk in, and we do not work, walk in these good works, and we encounter something we know we should do, and we don't do it, and you feel that conviction, like, oh, I should have did that. I should have helped this person. I should have made myself available. That is sin. And the sin, the conviction you and I are feeling, is because that is something God prepared. And he wanted us to be involved in it, and we missed it. And so, but we just repent because we know is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Before we close, does anybody have anything they would like to add, share with the group? Anybody? Danny, anything? Amen. Will you close us in prayer? Amen.